Good morning, everybody. It's Steph. It's Friday the 31st of March 2006. I hope you're doing well. And yes, I did, in fact, take a day off from podcasting yesterday. It's shocking, I know. Delinquent in my duties, but um, I uh, took the day off from work and actually had a bunch of promos and introductions to record for Free Thought Radio, who are kindly agreeing to air three of my programs on a cycling basis per week. So that should be good, and so I had to uh, do some recordings of intros and all that, about six in total, so uh, that took a little bit of time, and uh, what do you care about the detritus of my day? Anyway, I, didn't get, I started doing a podcast in the evening while Christina was seeing a patient downstairs uh, on the French riots, uh, the riots of the French students at the moment, but uh, <laughs> I guess two things. One is that I started boring myself, and partly because the topic isn't, to me, that interesting, and also because... I couldn't raise my voice, so, you know, if I can't shriek, really, what's the point of opening my mouth at all, so, and and it was a good idea, somebody IM'd me and suggested that I have a look at that, and it was a good idea, but uh, it's just, to me, it's so predictable, it is like asking a doctor his opinion uh, in the terminal stages of cancer, I mean, they're gonna die, <laughs> you know, there's not that much to talk about. And in France, I mean, France, like most of Central Europe, has this completely disastrous economic policy. I mean, it's almost pure socialism. I mean, you have income tax rates on average 40 to 50 percent, and then you have another 18 percent, I think it is, tax on goods. So you've got people paying, you know, 70 percent of their money just on those two items. And there's, you know, I'm sure about a bazillion other taxes as well. And so, of course, the young people can't get hired, and you have these ridiculously rigid hiring laws so that young people can never be fired, so they're really reluctant to hire them. So, you know, all of this sort of sad and pathetic jobs for life with no repercussions nonsense that the government shovels at people in order to buy their votes at the expense of those who come after. The sad thing about the French, of course, the French students, is that they're left-leaning, right? Like, (laughs) let's fight cancer with uh, a shotgun. And so there's going to be, you know, the usual disasters that are going to happen there are completely predictable, right? I mean, they import a lot of labor, a lot of the Muslim labor. They imported it from the empire to do the dirty work. And then they began to run social programs, all the same thing that happened in the Weimar Republic. They began to run social programs, and then the middle class gets destroyed because the poorer and more volatile classes are funded by taxes into the welfare state, forced out of the um, the middle classes. And I mean, the rich always get away, right? But I mean, the middle classes get completely hosed. And of course, this is sort of a, um, an examination of social policy in the absence of the argument for morality, right? So this is purely an argument from effect. And this is sort of the dangers of it. And it's exactly what you'd expect from a government, right? In the French, they say, well, there's a law that if you hire somebody... Um, <laughs> who's 26 and under, and um, uh, for two years, you can fire them without cause. (laughs) I mean, what a wonderful moral theory. Okay, so from 26 and under, somebody has a completely different moral nature than they do when they're 26 and older, or older than 26. And also, for the first two years of their employment, they have one set of moral rules, and then right after... (laughs) You have the completely opposite set of moral rules. So the first two years, you can fire them without cause, without cause, without anything. You just walk up and say, clear your desk out, you're gone. And then right after that, you cannot fire them even with cause. I mean, (laughs) isn't that just kind of funny? I mean, this is, oh, I mean, this is the, um, this is the intellectual capacities of the ruling class. 
somebody posted on the board, it's like, well, you know, shouldn't we be worried or, you know, how soon until the state turns its guns on us anarchists and so on? And it's like, oh my God, that's the last thing I worry about. They won't even figure out what we're talking about until it's too late. And by too late, I just mean that the state falls because nobody believes in it. So I have no worries about that at all. And you shouldn't, uh, I think, either. Uh, so the French thing uh, is just as completely predictable, and so the the students now they're rioting against their elders, and this is uh, what is so sad about about the young, except the young who listen here, you young gods of intellect, you. But what's so sad about the young is that they're mad, and they should be mad because I mean everybody's preying on them. I mean the public sector in in France is is over fifty percent of the economy. <laughs> I mean, it's, and you can, the tentacles reach far beyond that, right? Because a lot of private companies would be dependent upon the state contracts, state contracts for their survival. So, I mean, it's this completely ridiculous social environment. And of course, the young have been preyed on. And of course, it's all designed for the rich. And, you know, and their solution is uh, socialism, their solution is Marxism. I mean, holy crap. Are these people ever programmed to uh, feed more and more of their limbs into the fire? It's just astounding. Uh, anyway, uh, so if anybody wants to translate these podcasts into French, uh, I believe that the ranting will uh, will actually work out fine. Uh, actually, P.J. O'Rourke has a, um, a very funny statement about French waiters in Paris. He says uh, that they're so uh, contemptuous of you, they serve you uh, as if they're peeing on you from a great height. <laughs> I thought that was a great... He can be a very funny writer. So that I started talking about that, but it's just so mind-numbingly predictable and, and obvious that I just don't think it's worth talking about that much. So what I did want to talk about was something that came up in an IM conversation with a fine young, young libertarian two days ago. And it really is about this argument of, insert your country name here, love it or leave it. And I think that... There's not a lot of arguments that make me angry, really. I mean, not that you should care about whether I get angry or not. I'm just letting you know because I'm going to get angry. <laughs> so, you know, just don't uh, don't worry. Don't take it personally. It's just me ranting. I'm in the car. There's nothing but stuffed toys around me. Everything is perfectly safe. I am wearing my safety restraint. And I do believe that there's an airbag if I shriek beyond a certain decibel limit that comes out and smothers me, so even your ears should be fine. Actually, I'm starting to vo volume normalize these as I become more technically proficient. I'm starting to volume normalize these podcasts, so hopefully that's helping you a little bit. So the idea that America is owned by someone and that someone gets to set the rules based on some subjective interpretation of the majority will, which has been programmed by state schools and is 99% of the time ignored anyway. The idea that somebody owns America, interprets the will of the majority, enacts rules, and that the minority must either love it or leave it is a completely, absolutely, revoltingly contemptible idea and goes against the grain of everything that America was founded to be. Now, the foundation of America is a controversial topic. We'll talk about that another time. There was the little matter of genocide. There was the little matter of slavery. There was the little matter of religious intolerance. And, of course, the federal government in particular generally grabbed more and more colonies uh, through force rather than through active participation, particularly uh, in the South. But we'll talk about that another time. But let's just say 
let's just swallow the pill, uh, the blue pill, I think it is, and say, okay, well, America was founded on the idea of a small government, uh, limited powers, and that uh, individual rights, and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, the thing that I've always had a problem with, with this argument, is obviously it's, you could consider it to be either absolutely fascistic, in a way that not even Mussolini would have dared to proclaim, or entirely communistic, uh, in a way that Stalin was fairly comfortable to, to maintain. But it has nothing to do with America. It is absolutely to do with Genghis Khan-style tyrannies of the oldest and most hideous kind, and that these people are using this argument to attempt to rebut people who are complaining about the size of government is just astounding. And it really does show you the level of fear and rage and corrupted thinking that is going on in people's minds. It's actually not that uncommon an argument. I mean, I've, I've had that even up here in Canada. I've had that even up here in Canada when I dare to suggest to people that the welfare state is, is corrupt and that the healthcare system is immoral and so on. It's like, hey, this is your country. You can either work to change it or you can leave it. And sometimes you don't even get that first option. You know, it really is the love it or leave it kind of situation. So, I mean, my response to that is, uh, let me ask you something, if you don't mind. I've bought my house. Do you think that I have bought my house like I own it? Or do you think like I have bought my house and rented it from George Bush or Jean Chrétien or Tony Blair and that they actually own it? Because I don't remember them co-signing the lease and I don't remember any conditional things within the lease that said in order for me to continue to own my house, I have to agree with every piece of sick propaganda that washes up like a dead duck in the airwaves. And they say, well, what are you talking about, right? Because people can't think. All they can do is bully. I mean, for the most part. Right? I, mean, I mean, we can think, I think. <laughs> but I don't remember anybody else co-signing my lease. My wife and I bought the house, and that's our house. And the only people who can take it away from us are the bank. I mean, ideally, right? In, in terms of contracts. The bank, if we don't pay. I mean, that's really about it. As long as we continue to pay, the bank is sort of contractually obligated to let us continue to live in our house, which seems to be entirely right and fair, and right? how things should be. But there's no other contract that I remember signing, or that I've ever heard of, or that I've ever participated in, that says, by the way, <laughs> if you criticize the government, you have to leave not just your house, but the country. Or, if you criticize the government, this can be used as a moral argument against you. You better leave if you don't like it. Now, I mean, I've mentioned in a previous podcast, and I'll just touch on it here, that this is just an indication of sick and bullying parenting of the worst kind. I mean, this is like, when you're under my <laughs> roof, young man, you will do as I tell you to, and, you know, you are, uh, you, you will obey. When you, when you start paying the rent in your own place, then you can do as you see fit, but right now you live under my rules, and all that kind of crap. And it's a, it's a, all it is is an argument from authority, right? All it is is saying, I pay, therefore you are my conceptual slave. That I'm paying for this, and you're taking them, and therefore you have to obey. So it really is. It's a family situation extrapolated to the state. And I mean, don't underestimate how common a process this is. In fact, it's just about everybody is talking about their family when they're talking about the state. That's why it's important to get to know them and their history as a person before... I mean, my view, before rebutting their arguments uh, at a fundamental level. And even if you don't do that, just in your mind understand that 
They're talking about their family. They're they're not talking about the state. We don't have any relations with the state. I mean, the state's just you know the magic Hoover that vacuums up our paychecks and occasionally sends us to war. But as far as having any kind of interaction with the state, I mean, I've never had an argument with the state. I've never <laughs> had a discussion with the state. I've never uh, uh, fallen in love with the state. I've never fallen out. Well, I guess I've fallen out of love with the idea of the state or whatever. But the state is not a person. And so people who have strong emotional reactions to or involvements with an abstract entity are simply using that abstract entity as a substitute, as a substitute for the person that they're really emotionally involved with, right? Your father or mother or whatever. <laughs> Except for me. <laughs> I mean, I know as soon as I start pointing this stuff out that uh, a number of people, and I certainly don't blame you, it would be my logical thought too, will say, well, how is Steph working out his issues with his family in relation to the state? And I would say that I'm not because I'm a market anarchist or as somebody brilliantly posted on the board, a post-anarchist, which I kind of like because anarchism is also associated with... Um, syndicalism and and communes and so on, and communism. So we're not that. So a post-anarchist, I think, is interesting. But I have no relationship with my family. Uh, I have no contact with my family. I have no desire for any contact with my family. In fact, I think if I saw any family member walking along the street, uh, my heart would contract in fear and loathing. And so it's hard for me to say that I'm working. I mean, I have closure with my family. That doesn't mean that they don't bother me uh, if I were to see them. Because you can't erase 30 years of history, right? If a particular piece of music is always played while you're being tortured, then you will never, until your dying day, be able to hear that piece of music with equanimity because it's down in your neurological system. And it's a fight-or-flight response. It's hardwired into the hypothalamus. There's nothing you can do to get rid of that. And, you know, why would you? Just don't, uh, don't listen to that piece of music, right? I mean, you can't erase the history. So... What am I working out with the state? Well, nothing. I don't have any relationship with my family. I recognize that I don't have any relationship with the state. And therefore, it seems to me that by dumping my foo, a family of origin, for those who, have, uh, for those who are cherry-picking the podcasts, um, who are missing the carefully constructed ladder of knowledge with which we managed to ascend to these lofty realms. <laughs> but uh, I don't think that I'm working out anything with the state because I'm just saying there should be no state and uh, I have uh, no relationship with my family. And because I have accepted the violence that is endemic within my family uh, and within a lot of other families that I've seen, not just physical but often verbal, which many times can be worse, then it's given me a clear-eyed view of violence and it's helped me to understand that the state can never be anything but violence and can never be morally justified. And once you take the moral justification away from violence, it all falls in like one of those massive tents that you take the pegs away from and the supports away from it, just goes billowing in and collapses down of its own accord because it's entirely sustained and inflated by fantasy moralities, right? Moralities of of, uh, this is one way, and then the next day it's the opposite way, but they're both perfectly morally absolute and so on. And so I do find that people who are talking about, you know, uh, your country, love it or leave it, that they really are talking about their families and that their own parents had no other methodology for achieving their allegiance than the threat of homelessness. I mean, isn't that sad? I mean, it's sad for a country, of course, but it's particularly sad for parents. And I remember my own mother, 
I mean, we had no respect for her whatsoever. I mean, we would occasionally be fearful of her based on her capacity for violence. But my brother and I had no respect at all. I mean, those caustic teenage years where you just roll your eyes at everything that everyone in authority says. Oh, oh man, do I know that one well. Because you feel an unbelievable level of anger and humiliation because the prison guard is so pathetic. And the circumstances are just such that, I mean, you, you know, you want to, I wanted to get to university, so I hung in there and then kicked my mom out when I was 16 or 15, I can't remember exactly, but my mother would say the same thing, you know, you, you boys just don't give, she sort of, you don't boys, you don't give me any respect, and she remembers at one point my brother was staying at, uh, we were staying at my aunt and uncle's place when we were younger, and my uncle said to my brother, you left the toothpaste cap off the toothpaste tube, and my mother would always say, and you flew up those stairs to put it back on. And, I mean, I was I have no memory of that, so who knows whether it's true or not. Maybe it is. But, of course, the fact is that my uncle I was not a screaming banshee, right? I mean, he was someone that you could sort of respect, so maybe my brother did run back up the stairs to put the cap on the toothpaste tube or whatever. But my mother wanted that very much, to have that level of respect. And if you ever watch shows like uh, you know, Super Nanny or Nanny 911, you see a lot of this stuff, particularly with single mothers, that there's lots of screeching going on, and there's lots of, oh, I wish these children would behave, I wish I didn't have to scream at them, I want everything to be nice, but everything is constantly deteriorating, and I keep having to bully, and I hate myself for it, and all this I'm not going to say whether it's a male or female thing because I didn't grow up with a father and I'm sure there are many bad fathers out there, probably uh, almost as many as bad mothers if I (laughs) may go out on a slightly shaky limb. But they want that level of respect. They want that level of obedience. But of course, you can only really get respect through integrity. You can only really get respect and have other people want to listen to you by integrity, by kindness, by generosity, by, you know, this sort of stuff. I mean, you're listening to me, and it's because you think that I have some level of wisdom that is useful to participate in, and I think that's wonderful. I mean, the, the, uh, I'm glad that the conversation is continuing. Of course, a lot of the ideas that I've had have come out of great conversations that I've had, uh, great uh, people that I've listened to, great books that I've read, and so to participate in this conversation is wonderful. And... That gives, but I'm not yelling at you saying you have to be a market anarchist and you have to do this, and if you don't do that, you're a bad. You know, I'm always saying, hey, you know, this, you can do what you want. That's the point of freedom, but there are consequences. Take what you want and pay for it. So if I wanted to get people to download a bunch of my podcasts, I mean, if I started screaming at them that they had to download the podcast because I'd worked so hard at them, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how, how long you'd be listening? And so parents who are innately corrupt and brutal, whether verbally or or physically or, heaven forbid, sexually, they recognize when people get older, when their children get older, start to think for themselves, start to get a sense of the real world, start to get alternative viewpoints. I mean, holy, do they ever get uh, aggressive, right? Because, I mean, they, it's, they feel their control slipping away. Somebody else mentioned this on the board, that the state gets violent when it feels its control slipping away. 
And I don't think that is true anymore. I mean, that didn't happen in Russia when Russia fell for a variety of reasons. We can talk about it another time. You know, I'm just, <laughs> I need an acronym for that. We, W-C-T-A-A-T, right? We're cat. <laughs> that's, that's going to be my uh, phrase for we can talk about this another time. But I don't think that that's how it's going to work. But I think with parents... There's a lot of emotional bullying very early on in life, and then you have to go. You go through this latency phase from like five to eleven or twelve or puberty at least. And what happens there is you're kind of compliant, you're kind of okay, you kind of sort of go along, and then your know, hormones hit and you get uh, you get bigger and you start to think for yourself. The brain doesn't finish developing until you're in your early to mid twenties. So all of this stuff is still being pieced together in your intellect when you go into your teenage years, and this is a time of great depression for some people. This young gentleman was IMing me the other day and talking to me a little bit about this, that his parents are religious and so on. I'm not going to give out any personal details, but it really does remind me of the struggles that go on in the teenage years between a sort of growing mind and a petty, corrupt, and vicious mind. And the parent wants the respect. They want the respect, but they've done nothing to earn it. And they simp- there's simply no way for them to earn it anymore. Even if they were to turn around the next day, it's too late. It's absolutely too late. If somebody now has a threat over you, and you suddenly say, Oh, I was wrong. I'm going to change. Well, obviously, it's not driven by anything internal to yourself. It's merely driven by the growing threat, right? So if you have a gun over someone, and you're all bullying and mean and tell them to do this, that, and the other, and then you drop the gun, they pick it up, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I think torture is totally wrong, I absolutely regret what I did, so, so, so sorry. Well, obviously, there's no credibility whatsoever, right? I mean, that's just a a trick or a maneuver. And so, once the kids hit teenage years, there's no capacity for parents to ever... Uh, win their respect. I mean, that's all long gone. I mean, I would say between the ages, by, by about the age of five to seven at the very latest, uh, that's uh, everything after that, you're totally sealed. Your fate as a parent is totally sealed, probably by three or four, but for sure after that, your fate as a parent is totally sealed, and there's nothing that you can do. So parents who then, who are faced with growing rebellion and skepticism and cynicism on the part of their children, they do two things, right? They appeal to uh, social norms, right, and which you know are also equally stupid and corrupt, and sadly they also appeal to economic bullying. So they say, "Well, I pay the bills, I do this, I do that." Like that's not your job as a parent, you know. <laughs> it's it's like saying if you're an employee and your employer says, "I don't find the quality of this report you did to various typos and the numbers are wrong," and you're like, "Hey, I showed up to work, didn't I?" It's like, "Well, yeah, but that's kind of just the base minimum. That doesn't get you any points, you know." I was at my desk, wasn't I? <laughs> It's like, yeah, but so what? I mean, that's. <laughs> I mean, if you don't do that, you'll get fired in two days. But you still have a certain amount of uh, requirements for maintaining a, a job a little bit beyond showing up and uh, surfing the net. Or, say, working on your board or your podcast. Yeah, that's it. So, for parents who then end up with this economic uh, argument, which is, <clears throat> it's my house, it's my rules. Well, I think that's wonderful. I think that's a wonderful argument. And all the parents have to do is to recognize that if they want to pull that, then that's fine. But then when the teenager is out of their house, then they do not have any rules. When they go to visit the teenager's house or the the young adult's house, then they have to obey that person's rules. And also when the parents get old and the child is supporting them, then 
the uh, child gets to set all of the rules and there can't be any complaint. And the parent not only has to obey the rules, but they also have to respect the rules no matter what, right? Because the argument is that the rules are determined by who's paying the bills. Now, the other th- so that's sort of basically the, the idea, right? Whoever's paying the bills makes the rules. Now, this is transposed onto the state because there's, compl- there's no logical argument whatsoever that would lead you down this road of love it or leave it, right? I mean, there's just no logical argument at all, so we know that it's coming directly. But it's so, people are so certain of it, right? So, and they're so passionate about it, so you know. You absolutely know it's coming directly from their family experiences. And so they basically then say, in the same way that the parent says to the teenager, it's my house, you respect me or leave or get out, well, then the state becomes the parent and the house the country becomes the house, and the child becomes the citizen. And I mean, it all plays out that way. I mean, it's so obvious that uh, it's sort of embarrassing to see people make this argument. From, from when I see people make this argument, it's like, you know, if you want to talk about your family, we can talk about your family. But I don't see much point talking about your dad and calling him the government. I don't really see how that's going to advance the science of politics at all. I mean, <laughs> you know, family therapy, sure, maybe if we're honest, but political science, uh, really uh, not so much. That's not uh, particularly compelling in terms of how you're approaching it, which, of course, gets people really angry, right, because they don't like to be caught about nonsense that they're talking about, and they really want to be debated at the level that they pretend to be talking about, which is, you know, love it or leave it or whatever. But the idea, which they're generally appealing to, is that those who have the most power make the rules, right? Because why is it that the government gets to make the rules? Well, it's one of two things, right? I mean, it's either an argument from uh, government equals goodness, government equals freedom, government equals, you know, that sick kind of montage you see on super patriots, cheesy websites with the the flag and the blue sky, unfur- the flag unfurling over a faint blue sky and an eagle with its head turned to one side, staring ferociously at the, um, at whichever foreign a uh, person is uh, not in favor uh, with the State Department at the moment, but objectively defending freedom, uh, that kind of stuff. So the government equals goodness. Government is staunchly there to protect your freedom, and the civil servants are there, and you know they're there to help you, and this, that, and the other. So it's the so it's the virtue. It's the virtue of the government. Government is good, and therefore you have to obey the government. So it's either the argument for morality, or it's the argument from uh, authority, right, or power. I guess I don't know what the heck to call it, but it's the argument from power, which says that uh, you have to obey me because I have a gun. In other words, whoever has the most force uh, wins. And uh, that it really is the argument from democracy, right, which is the majority rule. And the majority says such and such, and therefore you do such and such. Well, there's no reason whatsoever, as I've mentioned before, to imagine that a particular proposition... Uh, reforming Social Security, a particular proposition is immoral when one person believes it, immoral when 100 million people believe it, but when 100 million and one people believe it, flip, over it goes, uh, and uh, it becomes perfectly moral. It's like one of those old sort of, quote, digital clocks, which had those clacks that rolled over, and it's like, 11.59, evil, one more person believes in it, bink, (laughs) it becomes perfectly moral. And that, of course, makes no sense whatsoever, but really is is an argument from force. It's an argument from violence, which is not an argument at all, but just a desire for you to submit based on superior firepower. It's that old phrase, right? Peace through superior firepower. So since there is no logical or moral reason, it, it really is just an appeal to force. And what that means is that do as I say because I'm more powerful. Well, this is, of course, as pure fascism and communism. 
It's got nothing to do with government by and for the people. I mean, it really is, we've managed to wrestle control of the military, and we can point the military at you, and we have the nominal backing of uh, people, but so what? I mean, Stalin had the nominal backing of the Russian population because they were all programmed in state schools as well. So the majority thing doesn't mean anything. I mean, Hitler was voted in. What the hell does that have to do with anything? I mean, the idea that the moral, that the majority is moral, I think is certainly possible. I think it's certainly possible that the majority of people are moral. And I say that simply because in my life, I don't really find a lot of people who want to, you know, clip me one on the head because they disagree with my viewpoints. They might get angry or bullying, but they usually refrain themselves from punching me up, which is why uh, I prefer to deal with that Marine dude uh, through email. But no, I mean, that's unfair. I'm sure he would have uh, vigorously debated the issues and he may be working on a response right now, which I just haven't received yet. In which case, uh, I hope he does. I mean, if you're out there listening to this, please respond to me. Uh, I would like to be corrected of any errors at all times that I might be making. And I am not attempting to impose my will upon you in any way, shape, or form. And this goes out to everybody. I have absolutely no interest in you believing what I say or imposing my will upon you, which is pure nonsense and would be narcissism and intellectual corruption of the first order. What I want to do is to, you know, appeal to reason and evidence and let you make your own decision, right? I mean, like a scientist putting a science theory forward. I mean, they don't bully people into believing relativity. Einstein didn't sort of take people's children hostage or yell and say that they were immoral if they didn't believe in relativism. He's like, yeah, here's the theory. Check out the facts and let me know what you think. Because why obey? I mean, even if I did want that, what would the point? It wouldn't serve morality in any way to get you to obey me because what do I have to do with morality? I'm just a guy thinking, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's reason and your conscience and reality that, that I appeal to so that we can meet in the common room of reality and not in the non- uh, sort of non-intimate room of one person's opinion dominating and eclipsing the other person's opinion. So uh, let me just put that out there. So please always feel free. Good Lord, always feel free to correct me. If I'm right 51% of the time, I'm overjoyed. And anything that I get beyond that, I consider pure gravy. And so if you uh, find uh, that I have a problem uh, with what I'm saying, you know, be a brother to brother, sister to brother, uh, please tell me, tell me, tell me so I can correct uh, my thinking, because the last thing I want to do is to think that I'm right rather than I am pursuing truth, which are two very different things. So this idea that the government must be obeyed either because it's moral, well, uh, then it's just saying that uh, people are immoral and they have to be forced to obey morality and they're sheep and the government has the guns, which makes them moral because there's no other criteria. And there's no sort of in this view of obey the government because it's good, well, you can say, well, the government defends freedom and this and that. But, of course, if people really do believe that, if they believe that you should obey the government because the government defends freedom and is trying to help you and be good to you and protect you from old age poverty and all this sort of stuff, well, that's fine. Then all you need to do is say, okay, well, uh, first of all, how do you know that's even moral? How do you even know that's the right thing to do? I understand that it helps certain people but I still don't understand how that's moral. I mean, being in power uh, for the Nazis uh, helped a lot of sociopaths, but it wasn't necessarily moral. So that doesn't make as much sense. But even if we say that it is moral, uh, can we say that uh, over the long run, given the national debt, use the argument from effect, can we honestly say that people are going to be perpetually helped by these state programs and that they're good and they're helping people and so on? But, of course, people haven't sort of started with a blank slate ever when it comes to their political thinking, and I, I sort of put myself in this category as well. But people don't start with a blank slate. They start uh, with their family and, to some degree, their schools and so on, and their, their universities if they get that far. And so 
they don't start with a blank slate, and so they're arguing really in a vacuum. They're not arguing about anything that you're really talking about. So if somebody says, well, we should obey the government because it's moral, then it's like, oh, that's interesting. Well, how do you know that it's moral? You will immediately get irritation. And I mean, that to me is, is very interesting. So somebody says, government is moral, that's why we have to obey it. And if you don't obey it, then you're a bad guy, you should leave the country. Start your own country or work to change the system or whatever, right? Of course, if you could actually work to change the system, nobody would ever say that, right? The, the only way that they say that is because it's completely rigged to begin with, and everybody knows that you can't change the system, so until it collapses, of course. And so, I mean, there's just no, I mean, they know that they're telling you that not to change it, right? It's like the parent saying, oh, yeah? Well, if you switch places with me and you're the parent and I'm the child, then you can tell me what to do. It's like, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll get right on that. Thanks. Good suggestion. But, um, they, you know, when you say to someone, well, why, how do you know the government's moral? I mean, if somebody's talking about ethics, you'd think that they would have a pretty good idea, you know, and this is what Socrates found, right? You'd hope or you'd think that they'd have a pretty good idea of what it is that they're talking about because, you know, they've obviously come to the conclusion that something is massive and powerful and stuffed to the gills with the capacity to do harm and, and violence and death and wield death and destruction across the world and rob people of 40 to 60% of their income and blah, blah, blah that they have managed to figure out that this massive and growing, all-powerful state entity is moral, which is pretty cool, right? I mean, that's a tricky thing to do. So you have to say, wow, I mean, I bow to your incredible skills of moral reasoning because I can't, for the life of me, figure this out. So if you believe that we should obey the government because the government is moral, then please tell me how it is that you came about to this conclusion because it would be wonderful for me to figure that out too and it would put my mind at rest. And, of course, it would put me back in the mainstream, which is, you know, kind of a nice place to be in, in a lot of ways. As I mentioned in a podcast a couple of months ago, what, what is conformity paying these days? But what you get when you ask people why is you get anger, irritation, frustration, contempt, because they have no idea why. It's just something that they believe because it conforms with their view of their family. So you either get somebody who sort of they just hate the government and sort of irrationally and don't really come up with positive and viable and polite solutions. Or you get somebody who's like just starts worshipping the government because, you know, I'm a patriot and uh, they always have to have those Alex Jones kinds of voices, right? <laughs> no disrespect to the Jones, but uh, the man could clear his throat, I think, uh, just once in a while. But um, so when you ask people about that, right, they're really talking about their families and this idea that you know, love it or leave it, really translates into the idea that the government owns everything or, the, you know, the majority owns everything through the government and you agree or if you disagree, you have to leave the country, then really there's no such thing as private property or the government owns everything, which means either that the government owns everything and nominally leases it out to private entities, corporations and individuals, which is fascism, or it owns all the property directly and outrightly and can uh, cause you or force you to be exiled for disagreement, which is quite interesting. And of course, <laughs> if there was a free country in the world, then I'm sure that much like everybody in the 19th and early 20th century went to America, we would go there. I certainly would. Even if it was Iceland, I would go there. But of course, there is no free country. So it's like saying, you know, for somebody who's locked in a prison, if you don't like the prison, they're unjustly locked in a prison, if you don't like the prison rules, you can switch cells. <laughs> Can I leave the prison? Is that? No, no. You can't leave the prison. That's not an option. Okay, so it's really not much of a choice that you're giving me here. You're basically just saying, 
uh, shut up, respect your gods, and get back in your cell. I don't really think that was the idea behind this great classical liberal experiment or the Enlightenment experiment of limited government, small government, government with very prescribed boundaries, which <clears throat> never last, of course. But I think that that argument really makes me angry because they are absolutely people who make that argument completely deflecting legitimate complaints emotionally that they have about their family and getting behind the injustice that was done to them as a teenager at this phase usually and that's why you get such hot anger coming off these people because you know it's teenage trauma that's driving it which is a pretty significant emotional force and they don't of course have any clue or maybe they do but they certainly won't admit it that what they're describing is the exact opposite of what America or any free country is intended to do, which is to entice you to stay through benefit, not to bully you to stay through economic control. I mean, we certainly wouldn't rec uh, sort of respect a husband who paid his wife's bills, right? He was the patriarch or whatever. He paid his wife's bills, and he said that uh, you have to do X, Y, or Z, or I'm going to throw you on the street uh, homeless and penniless. I mean, that wouldn't be something I think that we would respect as a moral thing, and, of course, he can't even force her to leave the country. <laughs> it would be sort of like a husband who says, you obey me, damn you, wife, or I'm going to ship you in a crate to Timbuktu. I mean, I don't think that we would generally say that a prenup invo that involved that particular configuration of events would be a particularly good thing or moral thing. And if that's not the case, then you know, how is it good for the government? And the last thing that I'll say, really, it is the last thing, is that why is it only the government that has this right. I mean, what you can also say to people who make this argument is something like this. Well, if it is a valid moral principle to say that if one person disagrees with another person, that that second person has the right to order them to move, then, you know, if you're talking to your neighbor, can you say, listen, uh, you disagree with me, therefore you have to move out of this neighborhood? Well, the person would say, well, what are you talking about? And you would say, well, you've already agreed that the person, somebody who disagrees with somebody else, must be forced to move. So this obviously is a universal human right. So everybody has the right to order everybody else to move. I mean, obviously, it's not exactly a simultaneous right. <laughs> I mean, we can both move, I guess. But the government stays, right? The government stays in Washington, and the people who disagree with the government move to Timbuktu or have to. And therefore, I don't know, is it whoever says it first? Is it like a quick draw? You move! No, you move! No, you move! Uh, do you have to have tape recordings and play them back to get the split-second timing of who said it first and so on? I mean, this is all kind of funny, right? But if the uh, principle is that agreement can force someone, or disagreement can force someone to move, then why is it only George Bush who has that uh, right or ability? Why? I mean, if it's everyone. And if it's not everyone, then the argument morality for morality tells you that it's just a stupid opinion that doesn't mean anything, and the person can't claim that it's any kind of morality, right? Because if it's morality, it's got to be common to all people at all times in all places. And so since this is a right, you know, agree with me or I'll force you to move, is not a right that can be deployed across everybody, then it's not a right, it's just a silly opinion. And if somebody says, well, you know, it's a majority thing, it's like, great, okay. So if I have another libertarian who moves in on the other side of your house, then the three of us can get together and say, I'm sorry, you're a statist, and we, we two on either side of you are libertarians. You're sort of the gristle in the libertarian house sandwich, so to speak. And so you have to move. We're sorry, but you disagree with us, and we are the majority among us three, and so you have to move because it is, you know, agree with the majority or get out. And who's to say where that majority is prescribed? Why is it any more arbitrary 
to say that the, the line ends at the 49th parallel for America versus my little country is two houses with you in the middle. I mean, both are just artificial and, and completely arbitrary lines drawn in the sand, so we can just make up our own and all that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, if, if George Bush gets to define the country goes to here and not one inch further, then surely uh, everybody can make up their own countries and create their own majorities and force people to move and this and that. And if people don't like that particular argument, then it sure as hell it does not mean that it's a valid argument for the state either. So thank you so much for listening as always. I better stop. I'm running out of disk space. <laughs> Take care.